0: We are working towards people's control of the government building community control of the economy expanding the public sphere and creating structural racial equity today my guest is steve roberts who currently is the state representative for the 77th district in missouri but who will soon be the state senator for the fifth district and today we're going to be talking about our second special session of the missouri legislature so representative roberts thank you for joining me very much. And first of all, congratulations on winning your election for state Senate.
1: Thank you, Uh, honored to be here. Thanks so much for having me again, Kevin.
0: So we're now in the second special session called by the governor. Uh, What was the reason and how did this come about?
1: Right. So this dealt with authorizing more of the CARES Act funding to be used. I know with particular, with regards to the city of St. Louis, all of our funding's basically been spent and there was another uh, $17 million appropriation that we were, the city was supposed to get. And a lot of this can be used. For example, uh, we, we've got folks who are behind on their rent payments, things like that to, to help get them the support that they need. So the initial focus of this special session was specifically tailored towards uh, uh the CARES Act funding, and then I'm sure, as you heard, that that changed um, last week when we were up there when the governor expanded the call.
0: And and so, what is what is the other thing that the governor is looking to to get in this session?
1: So the the other thing that he's trying to get through this session was to deal with COVID nineteen immunity, and and the focus of that would be helping you know any businesses that are open to to basically make it so if you catch COVID um, them from them, you know, at their location, or you know, maybe you're working for them to make it so that the business can't be held liable.
0: Okay. All right. We'll come yeah. back to that in just a moment. Uh, on, on the budget, uh, so this is dealing with federal money uh, that was allocated. Uh, so where are the places that this money will be separated? You had mentioned the 17 million. Is, is that definitely going to go to the city of St. Louis or is that yet to be separated out?
1: yet to be determined so really this is basically an appropriation to allow the governor to spend the funds how he sees fit so most of our um debate was focused on where this you know money's going to go to make sure it's going to the right places you know helping small businesses things like that people who really need the support okay and
0: it, are there any surprises there or what are the places that you've been advocating for the money to be
1: spent so for me, it definitely the focus is on, on folks who are struggling to to get by, you know, people who are concerned about being kicked out. And I believe the um, uh, next month, there's the, the eviction hold for folks in the city of St. Louis. So, you know, for example, if you can't pay your rent, um, sheriffs weren't allowed to uh, evict you, but that's about to expire unless the mayor uh, ends up renewing that. So, you know, for me, my focus is really helping folks in the, who are in a vulnerable position, who've been laid off, who need um, assistance, just to make sure they have those basic needs.
0: Okay. And so how, how, do you, how do you make sure that money goes that direction? Because is this just a pot that the state can then decide where to spend it? And, and how do we make sure it gets to the people that need
1: it? Right. And that's what me and my other uh, senators and uh, representatives up there have been advocating for to make sure specifically our communities get the funds that we need. Uh, As I mentioned, that the city of St. Louis, unfortunately, we were shortchanged. We really need um, every dollar. I mean, there is a a place for it. And uh, uh, another big part as well is increased testing. So to make sure that our cities, the St. Louis um, Health Department has the funds that they need to make sure we're getting folks tested and can provide um, the medical care that they need.
0: So this money came from the federal government. When was it allocated? Uh, And and why are we just now getting around to it? Because I understand that it has to be spent by the end of the year.
1: Right. So it was allocated. I forget the um, I'm blanking on the date, but I I remember when we wrapped up session before we gave the governor broad powers. And this was really just an expansion of that for those um, uh, initial funds.
0: So let's get back to the liability law. So, so, what is it trying to address? What's the problem that's that's trying to be solved with it, and 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 who is being protected by it?
1: Sure. And for me, I don't really see it as a, a problem. There's a lot of concerns um, from Missouri Chamber of Commerce that you know businesses are afraid to open up, and they're concerned that you know if, if someone ends up catching uh, COVID-19 at their establishment, that they're going to um, be held liable, and there's going to be this waterfall of of lawsuits that are just going to be a complete threat to business. And I I don't think that's, I think that's very unlikely. And and for me, it's disheartening that we're using a a special session to go up to address COVID-19 immunity when we've, you know, there are more pressing matters at hand. So the, the reason for that is just to give immunity to any businesses to say, you know what, they can open up and they won't be held responsible. Now, I think that in our regular session coming up in January, if we want to examine that, that would be the appropriate time. And if you want to say like we do with food grading, for example, you know, you know, you have to have a certain number of um, uh, at least a, a procedure. Like, let's say, you know, you, you've got to make sure all your employees are wearing masks. And if there's a, an outbreak, you know, you, your company policies that you quarantine and you do this contract tracing. And if you, you know, don't require masks or you're negligent. I mean, for example, if you go to see a doctor and the doctor says, well, I'm lazy. I didn't sterilize my tools and I got all my patients sick. I think everyone agreed that that doctor should be held responsible for that level of negligence. So I don't think a blanket immunity for COVID-19 is reasonable or fair. And I don't think Missouri citizens want their tax dollars spent on a special session to protect businesses from these types of lawsuits. I think that if we're going to address it, the general session would be the appropriate time. Then we could have, um, it'd be easier to get um, folks up there to testify in favor and against and, uh, and examine it then so I, I you know and as you know we talked about briefly this this pandemic is not getting better it's it's getting worse you know our cases are starting to rise and as we discussed earlier a lot of i was supposed to be up in jefferson city actually this week for my senate orientation and there was an outbreak a group of the republican senators were in branson with our staff and they all ended up or not all i know several of them ended up catching COVID-19. So they ended up having to cancel the orientation. The Senate was supposed to come back to truly read and finally pass the CARES Act funding at the House had been working on the previous week. All of that had to be kicked back because of this retreat and them testing positive. So I am glad that they did the right thing. You know, they, they pushed session back, keeping our, our um, uh, staff and the other members safe. But just that week when I came back, uh, a couple staff members from the House ended up uh, testing positive and uh, as you can imagine, me and uh, several of my colleagues ended up having to get tested because of that. So it's this, you know, it's it's crazy because almost every day I get a, a text from someone who's looking to to get a, a COVID test, and I've been providing free tests for the last um, six months in my district. And I, every day I hear from someone who's been exposed or knows someone who was, and they're trying to get help.
0: It really seems like um, we especially since we're what six to eight weeks away from the regular session starting. That right. this this is a legislation that could wait six to eight weeks. That by the time any sort of uh, lawsuit even got started, um, y- you all would be back in session and be able to address it.
1: Right, we'll be back January sixth, so I, I don't see the the urgency of of putting us all at risk to protect larger businesses. And just you know, as as a lawyer, I think it's very unlikely that people are gonna. It's it's too hard to. To connect that direct cause. I mean, I think if your business is gonna be held liable, it's gonna be egregious. Like they're gonna be there, they're gonna say, well, you know what, no one was wearing masks and you know, the supervisor knew this person had it and they still made them go to work. I mean, if you're gonna prevail on a, a case like that, it's it's gotta be like an overwhelming amount of evidence. I just don't think that you know these businesses are just gonna get inundated with lawsuits because someone catches the virus because, you know, you've got asymptomatic folks, you know, you, you, you're not even showing symptoms until a couple of days later. It's just, and you can get it from anywhere because the disease is so contagious. So to hold the business to say, no, I know I got it at, not only I, I got it at this place, but they were being um, it's, it's their fault that I got it. You know, you don't, it, you know, in the flu season or other things like that, you just don't typically hear about lawsuits like that. So I think that it's, you know, a, a little bit of paranoia, but I, are our system, I don't think will, will, you know, create this huge burden for, for businesses in this wave of COVID-19 um, cases. I think that if you f- see these filed, I, I don't imagine, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't imagine plaintiffs prevailing on these types of suits. So I think that, you know, a jury or the, the judge is going to see like look, you, you're not able to show a proximate cause to you getting sick and the company. So we're, we're going to get rid of this. Unless, as I said, The company is doing something completely egregious, and if that's the case, they should be held responsible.
0: I think what seems a little frustrating to me is that um, we're we're looking to protect businesses, which is uh, on the surface a good thing, but at the same time, it seems like the state government hasn't really taken the initiative to, to back up and support those businesses with rules and regulations when it comes to mitigating the pandemic, so that um, if there was a general mask order throughout the state or Absolutely. stay at home, then you're, you're, you're sort of backing up your local business and, and saying, we're behind you, we'll take the heat for this. But without that support, you're sort of pushing the businesses out there saying you're on your own. Oops, I guess we have to now have liability uh, coverage because <laughs> we didn't back you up. So right. To me, that's, that feels like where the frustrating part comes in.
1: Yeah, because it's crazy. It's like, well, we, you know, we're not going to shut down the state. We're going to let individual counties and municipalities make their own rules. um, And we're just going to sit back and and see what happens. You know, I I think you're absolutely right. Something like a statewide mask mandate, like saying, look here, we're going to allow you all to open up. But here's what we needed to do. And it's not like this mask is a huge inconvenience. I remember reading an article where it was two hairdressers um, at a salon. They both ended up having the, the virus, and we're seeing patients. They saw between them, I think, over um, 120 patients during that week at the time that you know they were shedding the virus. And it turns out they didn't pass it to the contract tracers. Look back, they none of their clients ended up catching the virus. That's because they were both wearing masks the whole time. So I think there is a way for the the to keep businesses open in a safe way to to protect people. I mean, if I know that's an anecdotal story, but you know, you've got the heads of the CDC saying that you know we think that. A mask is better prevention than either even a vaccine can be. So if we're going to take this policy of, okay, well, we're going to not shut down, we're going to keep businesses open. The state really needs to take the lead and say, here's what you need to be doing to keep your clients, to keep your customers safe.
0: I think that was a story from Springfield, Missouri, early on, uh, like back in in the early summer. So yeah, I remember hearing about that, too. So another thing I, remember, I I was hearing about from this, uh, from this special session is that there was some talk of addressing uh, use of force tactics by police officers in Missouri. So what was mm-hmm. talked about and where do things stand, stand with that right now?
1: Great question. So I serve on the um, Special Committee for Criminal Justice, uh, Representative uh, Shamed Dogan. He's actually the only Republican African-American in the legislature. He's the chairman of that commu- uh, committee. And we've worked very well together as a team to work on criminal justice reforms and just other police reform issues. So he called this hearing and we really wanted to have, the purpose was this really to lay the groundwork for our um, general session coming up in 2021. I mean, we knew that we weren't going to be able to move these bills um, forward. We didn't actually even offer any specific pieces of legislation, but we wanted to have, start the conversation with representatives from the police officers association, the highway patrol, so we could get buy-in and support. So when we bring this up it's not just you know fresh and they have no idea what they're looking at so there were some things that that came up where you know they were pretty close to being like you know what this is right this is what we we need to do so we can restore credibility to the police and there were some issues where we got a lot of pushback which was a little surprising to me so for example um some of the main things we talked about was a statewide ban on chokeholds and st louis slmpd and the kansas city police department they've already ban those but the the person who came to testify in front of us with the sheriff's association tried to explain you know how you know these needed and there are different types there's respiratory chokeholds there's vascular chokeholds but kind of our point was when you're struggling with someone you know that that line and his argument was well there, you know the it's the um i believe it was the vascular chokehold they're like well when that's done properly um you know it's no one's ever injured there's a very low chance of injury but of course that's you you know, doing it in a training class in a controlled setting. So, I mean, if our city's police department can, you know, take someone into custody without using that maneuver, I think that's fine. And of course, if there's a, a situation where it's life or death, you know, that's, that's completely different, but just to ha- kind of have that be a go-to move. Um, I, I don't think that that's, that's, that's reasonable or ne- absolutely necessary. I mean, you, the focus really needs to be more on de-escalation training and, and things like that. So we got a lot of pushback on uh, the chokeholds, for example, um, no-knock warrants. We, we talked about and We really had some heartbreaking testimony from some witnesses who called in. There was a woman who was telling us that her neighbor basically had an issue with her. So her neighbor was friends with this police officer who then went to a municipal judge to get a warrant to search her house because of an unpaid utility bill. So they kicked down the door, they walk in, shoot her dog as it's running away, um, they put a gun to her nephew's head and say that if he moves, they're going to kill him just completely like egregious behavior. We're sitting there like all this over, like, this doesn't make any sense over, you know, uh, her paying a ticket. and Apparently she'd spoken with the officer the day before to say, Oh yeah, no, like I spoke with the utility company. Like it's fine. I'm on the payment plan. But this, I guess, spiteful neighbor, just in this officer, for example, who ended up having a lot of complaints against him, um, broke down uh, her door and, you know, terrified her and all of her family members. And you hear about things like that and it just breaks your heart. And, and you know, I, I know in my community, for example, there is an inherent um, distrust of police because you hear about things like that and it's someone, you know, this has happened that these things have happened to. So, you know, the we had a representative from the highway patrol um, speak with us on that. And, you know, they were saying, well, you know, these are are very rarely, Used um, and, and when they are, it's you know for a, a very limited purpose. But I just I don't think that there's there's a a, a real need for those in the state. You know if if, if you you know need to do this, no, knock warrant because you're trying to seize drugs and you're worried about them flushing them down the toilet. And you know that's really not who you need to be going after. If they got such a small amount that they can just flush them down the toilet. Then you can knock and you know go for it. Then I mean, this they should have a massive amount. Or there's nothing preventing you from announcing yourself giving you enough time to go, you know, properly go in there, identify yourself just to minimize that that risk.
0: Uh, I don't know if you you have this information, but can you clarify for me, is 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 the uh, status of it being no knock? Is that determined by the judge issuing the warrant? Or is that something that the police decide when they execute the warrant?
1: So it's before, so they have to apply to the judge. So basically the judge will sign off the warrant, you know, they're requesting and there's, there's a, a very specific um, amount of criteria that is supposed in an ideal situation is supposed to be met. You know, like it's, you know, I can't remember what they are exactly are, but the police are saying, here's basically they have the warrant give it to the judge and saying, Hey, look, here's why this needs to be a no knock warrant. And then the judge signs off on it and then it's executed. Okay. Um, so-
0: so it sounds like if if we were to el- eliminate or drastically reduce the use of no-knock warrants, it's it's then puts, it seems to me that puts the emphasis then on the system instead of the police officer in, in, in that moment making the decision. So the judge actually then says, nope, you can't do it. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it almost, it seems to me that it would actually lift, sort of lift the burden on the police. You know what your, your parameters and your boundaries are, and, and this is how you have to go forward.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and kind of re- related to that, um, something that I, I was glad that um, and the representative from the Highway Patrol actually agreed with me this year. That we've got a, an issue, um, in St. Louis County of, uh, and I spoke with it. I had a really useful um, and informative conversation with a. Uh, uh, the sheriff of Jefferson County and we were discussing, um, a statewide tracking system for officer misconduct. So the, and they call it muni hopping. So imagine you've got an officer who's, you know, relieved from training or is basically removed from the force and maybe they didn't technically do anything illegal or there wasn't a enough evidence for a prosecution, but this is someone who just simply should not have a badge and, and shouldn't have a gun. So what they'll do is they'll just go to a neighboring municipality, apply for them. And then unfortunately, something tragic happens and they found out, find out afterwards, like, oh, wait, this person was released from the neighboring department because of this bad behavior. So we were discussing, um, you know, a way to, to track that across the state. So if you've got someone released or, you know, basically fired that another uh, neighboring municipality isn't unwillingly unwittingly picking them up and giving them a position when this is someone who's a danger to society. So, you know, I, I, on that issue, I was encouraged because we were, you know, we're, we all agree that something needs to be done, but it's how, how do we go about doing, it? you know, is this a public database or is this some kind of registry that the highway patrols tracks? You know, how do we also protect that officer's, you know, I- identity and, and things like that? So I'm, I'm hoping this legislative session, since we're all agreed that, look, you're right, this needs to be addressed. And then the real issue we have is, all right, well, how do we address it in a way that's fair? So I was really encouraged that Representative Dogan um, put the hearing together Um, we had some great witnesses who just were able to tell personal stories, you know, it's always better to have them in person, but I was really glad that they took the time to call in to speak with the committee and hopefully, you know, when we bring this legislation up in January, you know, we can still can continue to build that support for these, um, these issues.
0: That's good to hear. And I guess that brings up a a couple, uh, questions then, uh, How are you transitioning to your Senate responsibilities right now? You said that you were supposed to be in an orientation that has had to be canceled because of COVID outbreak within the Senate. So what types of things are you doing right now to transition? And and how do you carry since you're in the House right now, how would you carry a bill like this forward to the Senate?
1: Right. So I'll, I'll have my what the what we typically do is you'll have a House sponsor and the Senate sponsor. So for some of the stuff I've been working on with Shemette, you know, I'd carry it in the Senate chamber. Um, him or another member would carry it in the House chamber. And right now um, we got our uh, I, at first we thought we were, they weren't going to give it to us until we were sworn in. But they've given us our ability to pre-file legislation. So we do have Senate staff available to us. So me and my legislative assistant. I've been going through legislation that I filed previously in the House that we want to continue to work on in the Senate. Uh, another one that had broad support and committee provided a uh, tax incentive for employers who hire people who have a felony conviction full time. And we put certain um, precaution measures in there, for example, so you don't have someone just taking advantage of it. You know, they have to have the employee hired for six months. Um, within that consecutively in that year. And, you know, we figured if you hired someone for they've been there for six months, you know, that's someone you put a lot of time and energy into and you've invested in them and they're going to continue to be a loyal employee. So really just trying to put a suite together of information that, you know, we can have for people looking for that second chance where that, you know, they can take that to an employer and say, look, you know, I I know you've got concerns about this, but here are different benefits because, you know, for me, I've always been passionate about our most vulnerable citizens and helping out folks who deserve and need that second chance you know as you know once you have a felony conviction the worst part about it isn't necessarily the time you serve in prison it's everything afterwards i mean you can legally be discriminated against in um, your job who hires you can be legally discriminated against in your housing Um, so whether it's um, perceived or actual that's just a a huge burden that continues to hold people back so anything i can do that you know changes that anything where we can increase funding for diversion programs drug treatment course because those things work. I, I mean, I saw when I was out in California, when I was a law student, I was able to work with a Compton district attorney's office. And we really took a focus in looking at the individual as, you know, is this someone who is a threat and danger to society? Or is this just, you know, a young kid who did something stupid, who, you know, we can do other things to, to get him on the right track, as opposed to burdening him with a felony conviction.
0: That brings up uh, an issue that is close to the heart of MCU right now. And that's unlock the vote, which is re- mm. related to this. So making sure that those who have served their time um, and are, are, but are still on probation or parole uh, have their voting rights restored to them. Have you worked on that at all? And what do you see as, as far as a path forward for that in the, in the legislature next year?
1: I haven't yet, but that's definitely something I would, I would love to champion. You know, unfortunately, um, Republicans have been, <laughs> for a better word, just very against anything that makes voting more accessible or expands it. Um, I mean, I think absolutely, you know, if you're on paper as you're still an American citizen, you know, that's not a right that you should lose or forfeit. Um, so there, there hasn't been much on that. And, you know, me and uh, Representative Bosley have been trying to make it easier for folks um, who are, you know, in jail to, to be able to vote you know, to, to do mail-in ballot absentee, things like that. So we get a, a lot of pushback, unfortunately, for the Secretary of State on anything really that can expand voting. I'm glad that we were able to do some form of that with the, the, during the, the pandemic, we expanded mail-in voting, but all of that was statutorily limited. So, you know, it's interesting because in there, we gave uh, the Secretary of State authority to investigate claims of um, voter fraud or or misconduct. And, you know, from my perspective, I'm like, Great, go ahead and investigate it. This will show our point that this isn't an issue in the state of Missouri. So, you know, we gave him those broad powers. And I, I imagine there's still when we try to, to make it the norm in the state, they're going to say, well, we've got to protect our, our you know, electoral system. It's, it, there's too much fraud. It's like, well, you know, your office had the ability to investigate it. Did this happen then? No. So then what's the problem? So. You know, it's it's un, unfortunate that, you know, one side of the aisle is more interested in. It's not about the integrity of our election system. It's about who's voting and them wanting um, certain people to vote and certain people not to vote.
0: Thank you for your honesty on that. It, it looks like it would be <laughs> an, uphill, an uphill battle for, the, for that particular legislation. So we're recording this uh, the weekend before the Thanksgiving holiday. So when when's the next time the legislature is scheduled to meet and,
1: and what happens next? Um, tentatively, the Senate is supposed to convene on November 30th to um, to finally pass the uh, CARES Act funding appropriation. And then that first week of December, I believe December 7th, the House is supposed to come back to address the COVID-19 um, immunity. But it's all still kind of up in the air. Um, you know, we who knows if when we you know there there might be another outbreak or or some other limiting factor. So that's the plan. But I mean, at that point, you know, you're just, we're three weeks out from the general assembly session anyways. I don't know why we would we just unnecessarily risk that when we're going up in less than a month, but that's kind of the, the tentative timeline for now. And then for example, my Senate orientation, uh, they canceled. So for new legislators, they do a, uh, a statewide two week tour. And that's really a, a great bonding experience because it's you and all the newly elected officials. You take a bus tour, you go all across the state, you you visit um, different facilities. So, you know, you're in St. Louis, you're in farming communities, things like that. And it gives you an opportunity just to, you know, bond with your other members of the legislature. And they end up having, it looks like they're gonna cancel that um, unfortunately because, you know, it is a bus tour. So you're in close proximity with these people really for for two weeks. Um, but that's kind of what, what's on the horizon and, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll do that orientation in in mid December. So, you know, I'll have all the tools I need to, to be ready to go come January 6th. When does the legislature open to begin filing uh, bills for next year? When does that start? So we do have our, our pre-filing open now in the Senate. Um, I'm not sure if the, the house is open that there's might open the first week of December. So we are able to start pre-filing legislation. And basically that just means like, you know, you, you, we have the, the staff available to us to draft the bills and then we can go ahead and sign them. So they're um, filed with the clerk's office. So you don't kind of have to go through that process. And there's some, some strategy as far as if you want to pre-file legislation or not, you know, um, if you, pre, if you're worried, it's going to be, uh, uh, controversial, if you pre-file it, then, you know, you've got a, a bunch of, um, lobbyists and kind of government, cause it's all public record. They may start, you know, building a defense of that legislation, trying to stop it, you know, and that gives them kind of a lead time to kind of get all their ducks in the row versus, you know, you just file it the, the, you know, whenever you're ready to up there and then they don't have as much time to organize. So there's a little bit of political strategy as far as, you know, do you want to pre-file legislation or you just kind of want to wait and just Drop it when you know you've if you got the chairman of the committee ready to hear it and you've got the president of the Senate and speaker in the House saying, OK, we'll go ahead and refer this to committee.
0: It seems like it's a it's a fine line, too, because if you it seems like if you wait too long, the the, the general session is so short from January oh, yeah. to May that if if you're not running soon out of the gate, your legislation is just going to get buried in amongst everything else that that gets filed.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it really if your legislation hasn't made it out of one of the chambers by spring break unless it's one of the governor's priorities there's a a good chance it's not going to make it across to the finish line just because there's so many ways to to stop stall out a bill or just completely change it so it's not what you know you initially started it to be we get these bills that we call them christmas trees where it starts as one subject matter they change the title and then it's like all right we're just gonna throw everything onto this piece of legislation because it seems to be moving
0: you talked about this a little bit with um, the, the supermajority. The results of the fall election means that the Republicans uh, remain in control of the executive branch, right. and continue to have the supermajority in the legislation. Amendment 3 passed. So that supermajority seems like it's going to be in place for a long time. What does this mean for doing your job as a state senator?
1: Well, I'm really encouraged that, you know, of course, it would have been fantastic to have a Democrat in the governor's office. I mean, because then we would have someone who could actually veto legislation back when um, uh, Nixon was in office. So they had to get the votes um, in both chambers to try and override a gubernatorial veto. And it it, it makes it a little bit, it makes it actually a lot more difficult, as you can imagine, being in the, the minority party. But for me, I'm really excited just to take off the experiences that I've had in the House to be in the other chamber and that's kind of one of the unique powers that our senators have. We've got some of the most powerful state senators in the country because there's only 34 of us versus 163 members of the House. And really, each senator almost operates as an individual and as an island. And that's just kind of one of the basic tenets of our senators. So if you're you know, determined, this is one of the reasons why we're the only state in the nation that hasn't developed a prescription monitoring program. Um, because you've got a couple just determined senators who are focused on killing that that piece of legislation. So, for example, in the House, they can time your debate. Um, you're not allowed to filibuster. And if the, the speaker doesn't want you, they don't have to, to call on you. So you could stand trying to speak on a piece of legislation and they can really just ignore you. The Senate, none of that is allowed. So once you hold the floor, you can speak on the piece of legislation for as long as you want. You can you know, filibuster it and they have to recognize you. So, you know, you can really do a lot of things. You can make amendments on the fly. So for example, on the house side, let's say, you know, there's a, you've got to always have an eye on the calendar because once they call a bill up on the floor, if your amendment hasn't been pre-filed with the clerk, you're not allowed to offer an amendment. You can do an amendment to the amendment. So let's say someone amends the bill and then you want to amend their amendment. If that amendment still be discussed, you can do that, but you're not allowed to do amendments on the fly, which it it didn't used to have It didn't used to be that way. That was a way to kind of cut down debate. So you've got to see like, all right, well, this bill's made it out of the committee. You know what? I know I want to amend it. I need to make sure I file my amendment ahead of time versus where the Senate, you can kind of just be talking about it and just right there be like, all right, look, here's what we'll do to satisfy you, to keep us moving forward, to fix this piece of legislation. So, you know, I'm really excited and encouraged. I'm glad we were able to hold on to a couple seats. So, you know, we had uh, Judy Baker. And um, Deb Lavender, who, you know, we were hoping to flip those, but we were able to hold on to Lauren Authors, who uh, she flipped her seat about, um, she, she flipped her, um, her senatorial seat. So we we're able to hold on to that. Um, Senator Sifton's seat, who, um, uh, rep- who I've with Doug Beck, he was able to hold on to Senator Sifton's seat. You know, that's another seat that, you know, the Republicans put a lot of money into that we weren't sure we were going to be able to hold on to. So, you know, it is encouraging that we were able to, to hold the line. On 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 some of these seats, and we we picked up a, a house seat.
0: So my final question, and you sort of answered this, but even just outside of of uh, how you're excited about the, the coming session, uh, what else kind of keeps you hopeful and 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 reenergizes you as you, as you work? What do you, what do you kind of? What's your touchstone? What do you come back to, to 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 give yourself hope?
1: So for me, and I I think that. You know, I, I'm really proud of the work um, I'm able to do in the same. But a lot of times I just feel um, I'm most effective just doing stuff back in my my home district. So I, as I told you earlier, you know, I've been able to set up this, this free COVID-19 testing. And now we were, I was able to get flu shots as well donated from the same those, the new Department of Health. You know, I noticed when this virus first broke out um, and, you know, really was... In full force here when we started shut down in march um the 63113 zip code it's an area of my district that's just historically been neglected where there weren't any testing sites there so being able to provide a free resource for folks who who needed that to you know make sure we don't have people um unintentionally spreading the virus you know i, I get a lot of calls from folks who you know are in a situation where you know maybe their heat is being cut off in the winter or their air conditioning um in the uh the summer make being able to connect them um, with the right resources, you know, we get a lot of calls from inmates in the Department of Corrections, being able to, to make sure that, you know, do what we can to look after them, you know, to make sure that, you know, they've got, um, for example, we helping someone get simple things like a fan, you know, things like that, just being able to use kind of our network and other um, liaisons within state government, like, I mean, a, a huge thing and something I'm really proud of my uh, legislative assistant, uh, Timothy Griffin, he's just been fantastic. We, we've been getting a lot of folks who have been really lost in, in all this. We're trying to get their unemployment benefits. Folks who've been calling, calling, calling in for months and just weren't able to to get through. And, you know, we're able to uh, connect with our liaisons to sort of expedite these folks. And, you know, we've really got some really kind, you know, just heartbreaking messages from folks, you know, crying, saying, look, I look, I've been trying to get, you know, my unemployment for months. No one's been able to help me. You all, you know, got on this immediately and I'm getting my check this week now. So, you know, for me, what encourages me is that, you know, I'll have a little bit more authority as a senator, you know, in the House. It can be a little more difficult to get um, department heads, uh, directors into our offices. But when you're a senator, I mean, you basically control their budget. And when you call, they don't send an the assistant, they send the actual director. So uh, another big thing, and that's important to me as well as uh, working with the Department of Corrections, making sure that we're, you know, I want to expand. I know Rankin has done some stuff with them, for example, but making sure we've got people who are confined. You know, everything we can do to empower them and make sure that they have the tools they need, um, you know, just a, a basic skill set. You know, there's some training going on now with CDL licenses. So they will have the skills to have a job, to earn a livable wage. So they don't have to go back to the behaviors that earned, got them in prison in the first place.
0: Okay, great. And I know uh, rolling everything together now since you mentioned the uh, Department of Corrections is that uh, the, the COVID outbreak in, in the Department of Corrections in our facilities has, has just been devastating not only right. the, the, the folks who are incarcerated, but also the staff, the, the ability to have enough staff, and it's right. just causing problems left and right. Have you been able to make any connections to, to find out what's going on there to, to improve the situation?
1: We have. And we, my office in Missouri, we've been in contact with the ACLU, making sure that they're informed with the, with the situation that's going on. But it's it's it, it's a, a huge, huge problem right now.
0: So that'll pretty much wrap it up for today. I want to thank our guest today, State Senator-elect Steve Roberts, who will be representing the Fifth District in Missouri. To learn more about MCU, please go to the Metropolitan Congregations United website at mcustlewis.org. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for news and events. I'm Kevin Prang, and you've been listening to This Is What Democracy Sounds Like. Tune in again next time, and thank you for listening.